Have you ever tried to record drums and the results were mediocre? The brand new Beat Kit by Lewitt makes it easy to get great results and is exactly what you need to start recording or amplifying your drums with fantastic sound. It includes four selected microphone models developed specifically for drums with dynamic and condenser capsules. With the new Beat Kit, you can easily sound better than ever before. Visit lewitt-audio.com and get your Beat Kit now for $449. For advanced setups, Lewitt's got you covered with the Beat Kit Pro, a professional seven-piece drum microphone set. Lewitt, make yourself heard. Welcome to Live from My Drum Room, episode 97, with my guest, the great Clem Burke of Blondie and many other bands. And so without any further ado, please welcome the great Clem Burke. He could be Hello. hanging on the telephone. There he is. Hello, John. How are you? I'm great, Clem. It's great to see you, man. Thank you for doing this. Sure. Pleasure. You've been a hard man to track down these these past few months, so I, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, uh, things really began to take off for uh, the band uh, when the pandemic kind of let up a little bit. You know, we titled our tour Against the Odds because, uh, you know, it was due to begin in... Uh, I guess in 2020, you know, and then of course the whole world went uh, crazy. So uh, we had to postpone several times and then everything kicked into full gear uh, back in uh, April. We did a arena tour in the UK, 15 arenas sold out. Uh, wow. You know, we have an amazing audience, uh, amazing fan base uh, in the UK. And uh, the guitarist Johnny Marr was gracious enough to be our opening act or our special guest on the tour and uh, was very successful. That's great, so, man. Uh, yeah, so I've been on tour basically since April. We just kind of stopped uh, in Huntington, New York. Uh, I think about two uh, two weeks ago, it stopped for a while. Fantastic! And thank you again for um, you reached out just before your show here in Boston, and I wasn't in town unfortunately, and I, I'd have been there in a heartbeat. So, thank you for thinking of me, and I'm sorry I missed it. Sure, we had a I great heard. gig there. Really great gig. Yeah, I heard it was great. I remember it being a real, I was thinking about you because I remember it was a really nice night and you were out on the water there and I thought, wow, it's a perfect night to to be at a show. So, yeah. Yeah, it was great. a good night. It was good. The, the whole tour was great. Uh, the band is kind of like a super blondie at the moment. Uh, <laughs> we have a few new uh, people in the band. Uh, Chris Stein, you know, our longtime, uh, my longtime partner, guitarist, uh, not really able to tour due to health reasons. He's been very active in other parts of uh, the Blondie organization, but uh, we replaced him with a guitarist um, called Andy Black Sugar. And then uh, right at the last minute, our longtime bass player, Lee Fox, had some issues with his health, with his oh. back. So I, I called up my longtime friend, Glenn Matlock uh, from the Sex Pistols. Sure, and Glenn, yeah. Glenn played, played bass on the tour. So it was kind of like we had the element of surprise. People didn't know what to expect. So the band was a little different. Yeah. We all enjoyed it. But you, but you, you had a bass player, at least, that you've been comfortable, you've been playing with for a long time. So that must have been good for you to not have a, you know, a whole different bass player that you'd never, you know, do, do a cattle call and have somebody come in that, you know, you hadn't played with. So that must have given you some some comfort there. Yeah, well, Glenn and I have been longtime mates, and uh, we ha actually had a couple other bands together along the way. One was called Slinky Vagabond with uh, the guitarist Earl Slick. Yeah, and uh, sure. then we had another band called the International Swingers uh, for a while. 
And uh, yeah, Glenn and I, and he has a new album coming out and I played on a few tracks on that, uh, that I recorded, you know, via files during the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. So it was and great to be with Glenn. He's a longtime friend. That's great. That's great. And, and talking about against all odds, um, that so that and that's that's in conjunction with the release of the the box set that's been out since August now. Yeah, against the odds, I think against it came odds, out sorry. August twenty eighth, and uh, it seemed. Uh, I think I actually came up with that title because uh, you know it really had to do with uh, having any kind of real success. You know, in the in the music business is very much against the odds and. <laughs> When we look back now with this this uh, archival box that we just put out um, in conjunction with Numero, the label Numero, and with Universal, um, you know, we had to go through all the uh, stuff that was in the vaults, you know, especially the uh, basic tracks and outtakes, which I really enjoyed listening to, uh, kind of really brought me right back into the that time and place in the studio, especially with the, the, the second and third albums that we did. And... Uh, so to carry that theme on, you know, the tour being canceled several times, we named the tour Against the Odds. And it just kind of all lined up with the release of the box, actually just about lined up because the box came out just as we stopped touring. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, we ena it enabled us to kind of go deeper into the Blondie catalog for the tour yeah. and uh, play almost a lot of the songs in chronological order. And uh, it was really good. It was an unexpected uh, by a lot of the fans of some of the earlier stuff that we uh, reprised during this tour. So it all kind of made sense. And uh, the, the, the archive box is being really well received. Yeah, so, that's great. Yeah. We all spent I, a lot of time putting it together. Fantastic, man. That's great. And that, that's exciting that you guys, you know, were able to go out and do this tour too, you know, and I, I, I've always remembered how big the band was, is in the UK. I mean, it's, it's got, it's always had this like UK vibe to it, you know, and, and uh, great. You guys can still go over there and, and do, you know, 15 sold out arenas, man. That's. Yeah. It's amazing. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. You know, that's when I first got my uh, endorsement deal with that premier drum kit that you have sitting behind you there. Was, yes, sir. You now due to the, uh, the success of the band in the UK. And the early tours, I was using, uh, you know, Premier Loner kits and really, really liked them a lot. Yeah. So, so had you, so I was going to, you know, uh, Pat Petrillo, our, our old friend, was hoping to, to join today live, but he's not able to. But he, he wanted me to mention the Bridgman Drum and Bugle Corps that, right. uh, that you were a part of. And, and I knew you had some Drum and Bugle Corps background. So just maybe talking a little bit about how that um, influenced your, your, your style and, because, I mean, I, I, I hear, you know, you, you have an incredible feel and incredible taste, but there's definitely chops in there. Like you have, you know, you, you can tell you've got like some serious shit when you want to really let loose with, with, you know, rudiments and stuff. So, I mean, is that, do you feel that that was a big part of how you grew as a drummer, you know, and, and playing in bands like Blondie or, or, you know, some of these other bands you've been part of? Well, my background with the drum and bugle course certainly uh, was an education. You know, I, I learned basic rudiments and also, you know, the endurance of, you know, marching and playing uh, the drums, you know, I actually wound up on rudimental bass drum in the end, which is, is pretty uh, rigorous, uh, you yeah. know, doing all the the rudiments with uh, two giant, well, you know what a rudimental bass drum player has to do. I, mean, I think maybe Billy Cobham was a rudimental bass drum player back I when. I think you're right. Yeah. And uh I certainly got a lot of my uh, 
chops. And I, simultaneously, I was in my uh, rock and roll bands in high school as well. I mean, I actually came down to where I had to make a choice uh, whether I was going to continue in the, the drum corps or I was going to get more serious with the bands that I was in because I was playing quite often uh, during uh, my teenage years with the, the two bands that I had. I had one band in my freshman, sophomore year and another band, junior, senior year. But yeah, the drum corps background definitely helps uh, tremendously to this day. And I, I learned a lot there. You know, there were a lot of rigorous exercising, uh, you know, playing uh you know, repetitiveness and uh, just memory because you're not really reading when you're doing, you know, you have to memorize your, your the, the charts and things like that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I was happy to be involved in that back when. But and and so that was a question I was going to ask you is so, I mean, you learned to read music as as a part of being in the drum corps. And is that something that did you ever find a, a um, I would say a use for it, but did you find that you were able to sort of implement that in any way, like in and, you know, kind of as you evolved into what you became now as a as a rock drummer? Well, interestingly enough, I, I spent some time playing with Nancy Sinatra, you know, uh, several years ago. We did some recording and we did several tours. And, uh, of course, famously, Nancy's main drummer was Hal Blaine. Sure. And, uh, yeah. you know, uh, Nancy has all her charts for each of the instruments to all her songs, including Hal's charts with the stamp Hal Blaine Strikes Again. Oh, and, man. you know, I was able to follow along with house charts. I mean, not read them extensively, but, you know, as I could follow along and, and that was a help going back to the drum corps. And, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, that's, um, that's cool. Yeah, it was really cool to see house house charts, you know, really, uh, as you know, how was a great guy and all that. But uh, yeah, that Nancy had, had all the charts, all the all the history of, of all her music, you know, was there and on file. So it was great to see that. That's cool. And I, I just wondered that because, you know, I, I wouldn't think, um, you know, I would think a lot of what you do, you come up with parts and you, you know, you, when you play in a band, you memorize parts. And, uh, but, I, but at the same time, if you said some of your things, like when I listen to some of the things you do and uh, I told you, you know, offline, I've been really digging into like the Blondie catalog, you know, leading up to us talking today. And like one of my favorite things you do is when you go to the 16th note thing on the hi-hat in Heart of Glass, when you go to that, during that bridge. Um, right. And it's that subtle. And, you know, I just wonder if that's, you know, being able to read music would give you a leg up on sort of charting that part and, no, you know, learning that part when you go into to record it. You know what I mean? Like remembering, not having to remember so much stuff. But, but you know, I mean, you ha you obviously, you 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 have a great memory. You can remember these parts because you play them live. You've been playing them for 40 plus years. So, yeah, well, our musical director in, uh, with Nancy, uh, the famous Don Randy keyboard player of the wrecking crew, et cetera, owns that baked potato club in LA. Yeah. Uh, he, he basically referred to me as having elephant ears. So <laughs> I took that as a compliment. That's great. Yeah, that's great. I think I seriously had heard that either about you from, from, or maybe when we talked about it one time, you know, you, you indicated that you, you're able to remember a lot of this stuff, you know, that, that yeah. you can, yeah, you can hear. And that's, that's huge, you know, being able to just. Yeah, a chart is always helpful when you go into a session, if it's, if the chart is presented, not that I can read it verbatim, but you know, it, it gives you a little roadmap, obviously. Yeah. 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 I mean, I remember the first time I saw you play, um, well, I, I guess the first time I saw you play was maybe in the 90s, but uh, I'd seen you play many times on TV. 
and realized that you play like our friend, the one and only Ringo and, you know, right. playing a right-handed kit and, you know, playing with your right hand on the hi-hat and then leading your fills with your left hand. And I was just going to ask you, like in drum corps, did you, is that when you kind of discovered, well, I guess when you started playing drums, you must've discovered that, right? Well, no, that's an interesting, uh, interesting thing because when I was in drum corps and also when I was taking lessons that never really did come up. And I think that has to do with playing traditional grip because I find when I play traditional grip, I don't necessarily lead with my left hand. It never no really kidding. did come up when I was getting instruction. It's just, it just kind of evolved later on, strangely yeah. enough. Yeah. I, I really, yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting that you think it would have come up at some point, but, but no, because, you know, if you're doing, especially drum corps, you're doing whatever right. you're doing, the, 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 the exercise or the, you know, the chart to the, to the song, you know, you're starting on the, on the right and right, left, you know, and playing rhythm cues or five stroke rolls, et cetera, et cetera, parallels. You're just leading, you know, basically what you're right. And I think, uh, yeah. I, and Funny. I suppose if you're if you're holding the stick traditional, like you say, then it would be kind of hard to versus match grip hard to sort of start a exactly in exactly. That. Did you ever yeah. consider? Oh, go ahead, Clem. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's all right. I was going to say, did you ever consider when you were younger switching to left-handed? Did you when you realized that you had this dominant left hand no, that you didn't? never did? Even when uh, back in the day we would play at CBGB with uh, Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers. Uh, headlining and i would use uh, the drummer who was actually a big influence on me a guy called jerry nolan some people i'm sure have heard of jerry nolan he was the mm -hmm. drummer in new york dolls and his kit was you know he played a left-handed kit but i would move it around to the you know to the right-handed kit yeah yeah I never really uh it was just uh i kind of i think it's a good uh good attribute now to have it just makes my playing a little different as it does make for you know mr star there mr starkey yeah. Yeah. No, I I totally agree. You had great foresight. That's what I was going to say is that you, you you know, I I started off playing on a right-handed set, um, okay. open-handed, and oh, then right. and someone said, well, you should switch and and switch it around. And I wish I'd done what you did, and actually learned to lead with my right hand and have a strong left hand, because mm -hmm. I think you're right. It gives you a a whole different approach and flavor. You know, when you play those fills, it's you know they just have this whole other thing there's this mojo there you know that's yeah yeah it does and then if i go around the drums i usually I just end up on basically uh, essentially a a double double hit on the you know on the right on the uh, da, 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 on the left hand to go around to be able to crash with my right hands you know yeah like you, an extended you, paradiddle yeah and you probably don't even think about it anymore right I right mean, it's, it's right. probably so yeah. natural yeah i, I yeah I, what i do think about is leading with my right quite a bit because I try to do that a lot, yeah. you know, to have that into that ambidextrous aspect to my playing. And a lot of times, if I'm doing 16s, I, I'll try to lead with my right, but it's very different. It's a whole other world when I lead with my left, especially when I'm doing 16s on the hi-hat. I have so much more versatility as where I can move around, you know, leading with the left. So, um, but I, I do try to lead with the right quite a bit just to balance out my, my limbs, you know, so have yeah. them both be a, uh, you know, being able to uh, articulate what I need to do either way. So, when, so, so you, I think you answered my question. So when you, like in, in Heart of Glass, for example, when you go to that 16th note pattern on the hi-hat, and it's, it's a hand-to-hand -hand thing that you're playing, right? Right, yeah. And, and do you, so do you lead that with your, with I your right? I lead the left, left. You lead the left, left. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay. 
Wow. Yeah. I got to try that. Or man. I mix it up, you know, I mix it up, but mostly leading with the left. That's the natural way to do it for me. Yeah. Man, listening to those songs again, you know, I mean, it's, uh, I, I know I speak for a lot of people, I'm sure, that are watching too. You know, the sound of your drums, the, you know, there was just such a great, um, you know, I, for lack of a better description, analog sound that you got from your drums. You know, they just sound so natural and big and organic. Um, cymbals sound fantastic. I'm thinking you were probably playing the A, Zildjian, like probably medium or thin crashes back then. Yeah, A's. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's what even, I. Uh, that's what yeah. I use now. I use A's again now. I was you using do. A customs for some time, but I'm back to A's. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. they're great. They're great symbols. Yeah. Now that and I had, a, I had a bunch. Yeah. I had a bunch of those uh, the vintage ones that came out for a little while. I right. think you guys actually sent me a, an Armin symbol when I got inducted into the Hall of Fame that you had everyone sign, which you were nice yeah. enough to yeah. send to me, which I treasure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. great. Congratulations on that. I know that was a little while ago, but yeah, it was a but, while ago now. But yeah. no, but but worth mentioning, man. That's you know, Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. It's funny enough. I I've been involved with and played with actually four bands now that are in the in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The the most recently, my friends Annie and Dave from Eurythmics are being inducted this year. Right. And you know, I, I spent quite a bit of time playing with them in in the eighties and. uh I, you know, right before the Blondie tour, I filled in for uh, my friend Gina Shock in the Go-Go's yep. and did a handful of gigs with the Go-Go's. And they uh, were inducted into the Hall of Fame. And then, of course, famously, I briefly played with the Ramones. So uh, Blondie, Ramones, the Go-Go's and Eurythmics are all bands that I've when people that I know, friends of mine. Just great to see that they're in the Hall, you know. And uh, yeah, it's great. The Hall of Fame thing was uh, was quite an honor, you know. That's an great, honor. man. And the, the people there are really nice. You know, that people that run the place are great. Yeah, yep. I, you know, I was thinking about that too. How I, I met you at the in the late '80s, early '90s. Um, I remember us talking at a NAMM show, and must have been right when I started at Zildjian, or not long after. And I think it was at a time when Blondie was taking a little. It was like the late '80s. Blondie was yeah. taking a little bit of a break. And you were playing right. with the Romantics, and I remember, you know, thinking, "What a what a cool." You know, you said I, you were just very sort of nonchalant. You said, "I said, so what are you doing?" And you said, "Well, I, I'm playing with the Romantics now." And I'm like, "Oh man, I'd I'd kill to play that to do that gig. I love that band, you know." Yeah, it's and a rocking band. Yeah. It's a rocking band, you know. And and uh, and you, I feel like there was never a time whenever I would see you until you know Blondie sort of restarted up again in the '90s that you weren't doing something, as you said. I mean, you were like always a working drummer um not an easy yeah, well, thing to do and you know yeah well blondie was the launching pad for all of us you know and i was able to uh you know due to the notoriety of the band and the people like us appreciated uh what i did and the success of the band and uh i was able to kind of use that as a, a you know jumping off point to continue my career in the music business and uh yeah, the Romantics, uh, that was a fun gig for me. Uh, you know, I was involved in a lot of other things while I was doing that with them as well. So it all kind of balanced out. But I, I never stopped playing, you know? Yeah. That's great. And I, and I, yeah, I, I think Blondie certainly gave you a platform to, to really showcase what you, you know, what you got, what you have, which I yeah, think well, is we, great. Yeah. Well, when we started out, we were essentially a trio. You know, with actually with Debbie up front, but the, the band was just the guitar, bass, and drums. So it gave me quite a bit of room to. Uh, I mean, you can make the analogy of other trios, obviously the Who and things like that, uh, where there was a lot of room to uh, 
play the drums and kind of connect the dots with the arrangements and kind of bring certain features that I did into an arrangement that actually was became part of the song, you know, and because uh, yeah. there was a lot of open space, you know, in the early days. Yeah. And, and again, I, I was going to, I was going to ask you that. And I always assume that those parts that these like killer drum parts and Blondie tunes were, you know, there was parts that you came up with. It wasn't, um, you know, yeah. It, yeah, yeah. it wasn't a producer much, yeah. or a songwriter saying, you know, yeah. Yeah, pretty much, especially yeah. early on. Yeah. 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 I mean, something like Union City Blue later on with the drum fills at the beginning or Dreaming or things like that. It just kind of just like coming up with parts. Yeah. Yeah. Dreaming. Okay. I'm glad you mentioned Dreaming. I was com coming up on my notes here because um, that song is, again, I, I always loved it and just listening to it while I was out running. It's a ridiculous song for a drummer. I mean, a ridiculously great song. Yeah. It's a great drumming. song to begin with. And uh, yeah. It's, it's great. So is that like an homage to Keith Moon in a, in a way? Is that like your kind yeah. of? Yeah, you could say so. But also, um, I think uh, our producer at the time, Mike Chapman, uh, who produced uh, our first, the first time he produced with us was uh, Parallel Lines, which is our big breakthrough record in the States. And uh, when he, he came in to do that record, he was very uh, particular about how he wanted us to work together. And he wanted every song on the album to be a hit. And so, you know, he uh, had a certain way of making records, which I enjoyed, but, uh, you know, he, he would really bear down on the arrangements and we'd all work together and make things uh, as to the point as possible. And I think with the success of Parallel Lines, when he came back to do the second album that he did with us, Eat to the Beat, he kind of mm -hmm. used a reverse psychology on me, especially in something like Dreaming, which kind of like I kind of had free reign to just go wild on it. And it was actually, I always mentioned, it was kind of a run through. And then by the time it was completed, you know, testing the drums, going around the drums and just kind of having fun with it. And uh, everyone said, oh, no, that's the take. It might have <laughs> been first or second take, you know. Holy shit. I was amazed as a, I was as surprised as anyone, you know. It's but, got that uh, yeah, that's fresh sound. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely uh, yeah. overplaying in a good way. Oh, and a totally, it's a, it's a, yeah. yeah. And what you just said, Clem, yeah. I mean, you could see that, like, if you had to play that five times, you know, by the yeah, first I, time, it would have probably been hard to have that enthusiasm, like that excitement that you have throughout. Yeah, it probably would have gotten a little more refined, you know. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I still uh, have room to do whatever I choose to do when we play that song live. It's kind of like a high point of our set a lot of times. And it's always yeah. fun to play. It always gets a great response. The the part where you're playing, you know, you're playing the, the groove like on the floor, Tom. Uh, right, like in the, the bridge, floor, yeah. In the bridge, yeah. yeah. And that that kind of... You know, not to say it's your, your, but it's almost like an homage to the Ramones too. Like it's got all these different sort of, you know, like I'm guessing like influences that you've had and, and just, but I, I hear so much like Keith Moon and that just in the verses, you know, just the, the, the drumming, the, you know, all the yeah. fills. Oh, I mean, I was influenced by, by Tommy Ramone, the drummer in the Ramones. I, I was influenced, I think everybody at, back when we all were playing at CBGB, you know, the Ramones and the Talking Heads and, uh, you know, uh, Patty Smith and people like that. I think we were all influencing one another because we were all in the audience for each other's shows early sure. on yeah. and uh, picking up on different things that people were doing. And back in the day, we used to cover songs in Blondie. We would cover Ramon's songs. We would recover songs by television and things like that. And there was a certain uh, 
you know, back to the roots of rock and roll aesthetic involved with all the bands there, but everybody was doing it in their own particular way. And, and I think we were all influencing one another. And yeah. uh, I think we bring that into the, the sound of Blondie today. It's kind of the sound of New York uh, CBGB, if you will. You know, uh, there's elements of that in the sound of the band to this day. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, by, by all means, it's, you know, Blondie has always had its own, you know, sound, its own uniqueness. And, and uh, I just, it was just kind of cool for me to like really dig into these tunes with almost yeah, like there's a lot there. fresh ears. Yeah. And, and hear all that, you know, all that stuff. And, you know, you, you've told me too, I mean, I knew you had a great relationship with Hal and with Earl Palmer and, yes. and, and, you know, how much those guys were like all of us influenced, but listening to their songs on the radio as kids. Right. Exactly. And, uh, and I, I always love that about you that you always would acknowledge, you know, their influence on you and, and how you approach playing songs and, I mean, of course, they influenced people like Charlie Watts and Ringo Starr as well, you know, so it yeah. kind of like continues that uh, that inspiration, you know, follows through. And uh, yeah, they were two of the best. I mean, what they did with all those, you know, everything, obviously, obviously as we know, from uh, from the Monkees to the Beach Boys to Phil Spector to Earl with Eddie Cochran and, and Little Richard and, uh, you know, Fats Domino and, and Hal with, you know, on the Nancy Sinatra stuff. And I mean, it's just yeah. amazing catalog of uh, of songs that the both of them played on, which we were hearing on the radio and being influenced by unbeknownst to us. We didn't know their names at the time. But uh, as time went on, you know, people we, we would delve into things like that and find out more history of what those songs were about and then learn come to uh, realize that that Hal and Earl were the ones really, really influencing everyone at the time. Absolutely. Yeah. And would you say so you probably started when did you how old were when you started playing drums? I was probably a, right around uh, probably just preteen. Just actually, yeah, yeah. yeah just, when the Beatles, you know, Ed Sullivan, and all that, all that stuff. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Four and Seasons. I was big on the Four Seasons too. Yeah, the Rascals too. Dino Donelli. Well, or? yeah, yeah. Dino, yeah. of course. Yeah, I mean, I would get compared to him sometimes. I'd be like spinning the sticks and things like that. Yeah, yeah Dino. Yeah, Dino was great as well. Yeah, big influence. You know. Yeah. For sure. And you, and you, you, you know Ringo a bit, right? Well, I've met him. Yeah, yeah. I've met him. Yeah. We did a thing with. Uh, for John Barbados, uh, the clothing designer, when uh, Ringo was like kind of like the the face of uh, uh, the fall line of John's clothes. And there was a thing uh, up in the Hollywood Hills, not at Ringo's house. So the drums were set up and uh, various people would walk in and out of the the, the set and, and play a little bit on the drums. And it would be it was people like Chad Smith and uh, Trey Cool and Jim Keltner and actually uh, Steven Tyler bunch of people so we're all up there at this house hanging out and Ringo's drum kit was there and uh you know we everyone could sat down and almost inevitably would try to play a one of Ringo's licks you know <laughs> I, I, I remember Chad sat down and tried to was playing the tomorrow never knows the boom dop boom ba ba boom and uh Ringo said oh no hold it hold it doesn't go like that you know because Chad was <laughs> Chad was Chad was doing uh the the sort of uh eighth note thing uh with two hand do it like that but it's of course yeah. it's like kind of like what i say like do it like that so yeah ringo yeah. got up and showed him that it was like that and, uh, yeah that was that was a great uh great time you know to be up there and hang out with him and uh yeah 
But I, I mean, I don't really know Ringo, but it was cool to do that thing with him. Well, yeah. I just I wondered if you ever talked to him about the, the similarities in the way you guys play. I wondered if he if if you. Yeah, no, not really. Yeah, I'm I'm good friends with with Zach. You know, with Zach yeah. Starkey. Yeah. I mean, I went yeah. Zach. I, Zach took me to the his dad's house when I first met him, and uh, he had the Keats uh, Moons uh, the set, the final set, the white set uh, with the uh, extra toms at the front and all in that. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, we yeah. went up to out to Ringo's house, and we went to one of the uh, there's a guest house on the property, and we we set up the drums and played those drums. So Zach and I, you know, we've been in contact ever since. You know, he's yeah. the perfect drummer for the Who, that's for sure. He sure you know, is, man. Keith he's... Moon was like his uncle, you know. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I agree. I, Zach just kills that gig. I I just you know, and I, and I know I don't know Ringo well either, and I just know that it's like. If you catch him at a time when he really wants to talk about that stuff, he's mm-hmm. he'll talk with you all day about it. And other times, you know, he he just doesn't want to get into all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I yeah. totally get that. Yeah, yeah. Well, but with our with the box that we have now, the archival box, you know, it's kind of nostalgic. But funny enough, in between the the tour that we did uh, in the UK and the follow up in the US, we recorded a new album as well um, in New York. So uh, we kind of like have both things going on. We have the looking back at the archive and we have a new album due to come out in the spring of next year. So uh, it was a little less nostalgic for us. Cause I expect, I understand Ringo not wanting to look back all the time. A lot of people are like that, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a on record, you know, anyway, you know, most of the things, but uh, sometimes you don't want to look back. You want to move forward. Yep. No, I, I, yeah, I get it. I, I can only imagine, you know, in Ringo's case that yeah. everybody just wants to talk about, yeah, all that stuff. And yeah, yeah you want to, you, yeah, you, you can't just live in that air in that zone forever. So, absolutely. so that's exciting think, for you guys. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, was just, I think it's great that Ringo, you know, out, has the all-star band gets out and plays and does his thing. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah, it is. And, and I was just going to say that, uh, it sounds like you guys will be probably touring again next year if you've got a yeah, record we, coming out in the spring. Yeah, we will be. We will be doing more next year. We've been getting some really good offers for for festivals for next year. Yeah, we're going to keep going for a while. That's great. We and, do it at our own pace, you know, so it doesn't get too grueling for for people. I mean, I mean, obviously for me, I'm always out doing something. I mean, I would I would play as much as possible, but uh, you know, you got to take breaks sometimes. Yeah, I'm getting ready to do a little tour in the UK. Uh, and in Spain, with the, I did a record with a, a band called The Split Squad. Uh, came out on a small label out in out of Spain. We're getting ready to go over to Spain and to the UK in uh, November with that. As an album called Another Cinderella that came out recently. Great, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to ask you. So, like between now and when Blondie starts working in again next year, would you? Are you going to you know keep doing stuff? And and there's my answer. Yeah. So you'll yeah, that's I'm following. Yeah, the latest thing I'm doing, I'm going over to uh, to get uh, my second doc, uh, uh, honorary doctorate from uh, Chichester University, and that's happening in October. Wow. And uh, there's going to be a bit of a celebration for that. Because uh, I have that Klemberg drumming project that had been ongoing for many, many years that was started by a, a professor, Marcus Smith, at the university in Chichester University. And he was... Uh, Olympic boxing coach. He's a sports medicine doctor. And he, uh, you know, was uh, making the obvious analogy between drumming and sport. 
And uh, that's been ongoing for many, many years now. So I'm, I'm getting another doctorate for my part in that. So uh, wow, kind of proud about that. Yeah, I'm yeah. more or less the figurehead of it. They do lots of other things now with lots of other drummers. But we kicked it off by him studying me over a long period of time, coming up with a thesis and, you know, having uh, having it, you know, followed up by various organizations and uh it's ongoing it's it's, it's interesting if people want to check that out it's the clem drumming clemberg drumming project it's called yeah and the, but the obviously original... any drummer knows how how athletic how physical drumming is you know absolutely yeah and in the original doctorate that you got in i think i've made a note of that was it 2008 yeah from gloucestershire got... university yeah yeah and that was and that was the effects um, analyzing the effects of uh, physical and psychological effects of drumming. So that was right, a different correct. study. Yeah. Well, no, it's an ongoing study. It's an ongoing. It's still study. ongoing. Yeah, it's still ongoing. Same thing. And okay. uh, but I'm just going to be. Uh, it was. Uh, I'm getting another doctorate now from this other university, which is great. Gonna yeah. have to call you Doctor Clem. I think. Right. Some people yeah. do call me that. The crew <laughs> calls me that sometimes. <laughs> All right, I will call you that from now on. All right. Doctor Clem. Right. Man, um, I made some other notes here just in the, sure. in the continuing efforts of me geeking out at your drumming that I've been a big fan of, as you know, for a long time. Um, okay. And I was, you know, listening to some of these songs. And I remember when you guys, um, and I, I don't want to use the word reformed, but I remember it was the late 90s when I saw you play. Jim McGaffey and I came to see you play, in fact, in Boston. Right. And the song, the record, and I for, forgive me for not knowing the name of the album, but the song Maria was the single from the record that was out at that time. Yeah, it was called No Exit, the album. Yeah. No Exit. Okay, yes, yes, yes. And I just, you know, today I listened to that song again this morning, and I remembered there was a great drum fill, and I waited for it. And it's. At, I made a note. It's at like, for all you drummer geeks at home, Listen to check out this song if you don't know it, Maria. And at three minutes forty-two seconds, you play this. You know the film I'm talking about? Oh yeah, I'll, I'll kind of out on the fade. It's kind of like a Hal and a Hal Blaine thing. Yeah, yeah. but but really like Hal Think Blaine. Maybe. Yeah, meets like Max Weinberg in terms of how fast it is. It's just this really right. fast. Yeah. Yeah. What was that thing with Spectre apparently telling Hal to hold back until the end of the songs all the time, and then just kind of go wild then he gets just a triplet thing that's kind of his trademark and uh, yeah, yeah. various other kind of fills and things well, i kind of when i'm in the studio i've constantly actually always quite quite a bit think of hal and, and earl tell you the truth yeah that's great and that that totally explains it because i was going to say throughout the song you're totally restrained i mean you're playing great solid groove right um you know I, I think the fills, the only fills that you're sort of playing are like little cymbal crashes and just little, it's little you know, five stroke things going on. Yeah. To transition to the next section yeah. of the song. And then that fill happens at the end, like you say, during the fade. And it's, I, you know, I like re-listened to it a bunch of times. It's so, I, oh, I wow. can't even, yeah. I mean, the sticking between the tom-tom and the snare drum, it's great. Really Thanks. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that song was, uh, you know, it was a, a big hit for us uh, in the rest of the world. And it was number one in the UK. And it was perfect uh, to begin our so-called you know, comeback, which is really what it was, you know, because we had stopped for almost 15 years. And uh, my friends would always tell me that they thought that we would get back together at some point. I wasn't quite sure about that or not. And uh, kind of just got on with my life, you know, working on with other bands and doing other things. And uh, 
But now we've been together longer. Chris, Debbie, and I have been together longer this time than the first time we were together. So uh, it's pretty amazing. Because you know, like you said, it yeah. started in the early in the late '90s, and we uh, essentially our our kind of manifesto was to make new music. It wasn't about just getting back together to play the hits. So we took our time, you know, to make a new album at that time. And uh, we worked with uh, the producer Craig Leon, who uh, mm-hmm. co-produced our very first single. You know, Craig produced the, the Ramones' first album and lots of other things. So. Um, it was great to kind of came full circle to work with Craig and to do that album. And, uh, it was great. Yeah. It's a great record. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just jumping back for a second too, when you, you know, just talking about the, the, you know, the early stuff, the hits and just the, the, the records from the seventies and, and early eighties, mm-hmm. were you playing to like, in a lot of those, like heart of glass, are you playing to a sequencer on that song? Is there a, well, actually, you know, it was before the days of MIDI. Yeah. And what we did really was uh, in conjunction with the arpeggiated sequencer pattern, which would go out of time after a measure or two, you know, uh, because it was an analog synthesizer, Roland synthesizer. So what we were doing was really I kind of built my own click track uh, with the bass drum. So we just did the quarter note bass drum uh, in time with the uh, the 32nd note sequencer pattern. Um, and we had to do it very piecemeal. Because it would, wow. as I said, it would go out of time. Or so I laid down the quarter note bass drum, and that essentially was the click track for that song. And then I played all the other drums on top of that. And we just programmed the the we we recorded the synthesizer and the bass drum together, piece you know piece by piece. Yeah, and that's yeah. how it started. And then the rest of the stuff was on top. Because yeah, because when you listen to it, it sounds like like if you made that record today you'd have a, you know, you'd have a click track, you'd have a, a sequencer or something, you know, to, to, to line right. everything all up the way it's all lined up, but. Yeah, it would be midied and the sequencer would be midied and the click track would, so it would be in complete time. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect yeah. time. Yeah. That's amazing that you were Yeah, we had to, to build that, that up. Yeah. We had to build that track from the bottom up that way. It was, it was, it was, it was a work. It was a bit of work, you know, it took some time because I mean, I had to just sit there and just do quarter notes on the bass drum in conjunction with the sequencer pattern. It, you know, not the ex- most exciting thing <laughs> no. to be doing, but, uh, you know, it worked out, definitely worked out. And, you know, we thought we were experimenting with electronic music. We never thought it was going to be the hit that it became. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was well, a big, uh, big open door opener for us in the States. It's, you know, I remember when, when you were nice enough a year ago to come on the tribute to Charlie Watts, that oh, right. show that I did, which was great. And, and thanks again for doing that. And, and you made the comment about, um, you know, Charlie and having Miss You and and you and Blondie, you having Heart of Glass. And I think you mentioned Carmine, do you think I'm sexy? But, right. you know, I think Charlie would forgive me, but, you know, there's like Heart of Glass has just so much going on. There's just so much, that's such a happening tune. You know, I you, you could never dismiss that as a, you know, as another disco song, I think anyway. I think it's just, you know, it's just, it's just a great feeling tune, uh, as is Miss You, of course, you know. Yeah, the Heart of Glass, I mean, it kind of has a new wave attitude to it or a punk yeah. rock attitude at the same time of it being a dance song. And uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. And and Debbie's voice, of course. I mean, she's, you know, I mean, just one of the all time great singers that that, you know, oh, Debbie's great. I mean, forget. you know, yeah. her glamour get, you know, over gets the glamour it has it where people overlook her creativity and her 
amazing songwriting talents, and especially with the lyrics. You know, Debbie's amazing. You know, yeah, she's yeah, to this absolutely. day, she's great. I was very lucky to uh, meet up with her and Chris back when, and I, uh, you know, we struggled to make things work. People dropped out of the band. I brought my high school buddy in, Gary Valentine, who had never played bass before to play bass in the band, and you know, things like that. We we just kind of had a few years of getting it together and kind of workshopping our material in public, you know, at CBGB, I always make that analogy of CBs being a kind of a workshop, you know, that just could go in there and basically do whatever you wanted to do and just see how it was accepted. It wasn't about being uh, completely perfect. It was just kind of about, you know, playing and just kind of uh, letting it all happen and see where it went from there, you know, and it was a big, uh, big help having that, that venue for, for all the bands back when. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Big time. But you know, the fact that you guys all believed in what you were doing, you know, right. Yeah. That, that's also, you know, you, you got to have that. And, and just to back up for one second and, you know, talking about what you did to, to sort of build up from the bottom of heart of glass, had you, had you had any experience prior to that? Cause those were the early days of like sequencers and click tracks. And had you had experience playing along to a click or something with, you know, time that was, you know, no, I mean, we didn't really use a click track on any of the Blondie records, you know, back yeah. in the day. Uh, sometimes a producer, Mike, would be in the studio conducting us and conducting me or uh, kind of just kind of helping the track move along. But uh, no, that was uh, an experiment. You know, we had that that early uh, rolling drum machine and that to put that sync that up with the with the drums and everything was a bit of a job, too, you know, because it you know, to make it all be in time, you know, and have it work, you know, a lot of things going on there. But yeah. uh, no, I hadn't had any, you know, I, yeah, I was always open minded to to, to to any ideas people would come up with, you know, in the studio, see how it would go. You know, that's kind of that's a big thing. I think when you're working with other people, especially if you're a drummer, you know, you have to be open minded to other people's ideas and, you know, bring your ideas in. But just kind of. uh be up for trying ideas, trying things out, not to dismiss things like immediately, like, you know, oh, that's not going to work. Or, you know, mm, just kind of mm -hmm. go, you know, kind of work together. Yeah. Yeah. But I, that was the first advice. attempt at doing something like that. Yeah. Then we followed that up when we did the song Atomic on the, on the E to the Beat album, mm -hmm. kind of a similar, similar thing as far as working with sequencers and drum machines. Yeah. And when you do that song live now, do you, is there, is there a, like a click going on to keep it all all heart of glass yeah heart of glass yeah yeah there yeah. is uh the drum machine and the click it's all it's all midi together now yeah yeah, yeah i play to i play to a click I, I, well, the I live show that. is about uh maybe 40 percent to a clicks and programs and the rest is uh preform you yeah. know it's a good yeah. balance certain songs when there's sequencers involved and you know programming you, know, you got to play to a click you know to yeah. keep it all in sync yeah. I mean, I enjoy playing to a click. It's great. It's really fun. Yeah. Uh, you're obviously really comfortable. You're really, you know. A lot of times, a lot of times I'll start the song before the click starts just to make people a little anxious. And then when the click goes, comes on, it's in time with the song anyway. So that's, kind that's of funny. That's, that's pretty great. That's yeah. Yeah. That wouldn't be me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember, I remember seeing you do heart of glass and I, and I thought I remembered you seeing with maybe headphones at the time. Right. Yeah. And, um, and those, because you get to really stretch at the end of the tune, you start playing all those fills during the right. sort of the vamp and, 
and it was just right there. It was like, you know, just perfect. Everything was right in there. And um, yeah, that's definitely to a click with, cause the sequence is going in the drum machines going. Yeah. Yeah. You know, those programs are happening during the, the body of the song. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Um, man, I, I, uh, we covered a lot of stuff here. We covered a lot of stuff. Cool. Here. Cool. I, yeah. I, I won't keep you much longer. I did want to just mention that um, I know I have this old premiere set here that I wanted to have here for in your honor, but you've been with right. DW for a long time now. So I, I didn't want to overlook the fact that you've been, you know, happy and playing their drums for a long time too. And um, so if you want to give them a shout out or. Well, yeah, well, DW, I mean, the, they're having their uh, 50th anniversary right now. And uh yeah, the, we think we talked about off uh, offline. Uh, there, uh, obviously, they have made a merger with uh, Roland. Surprisingly enough, uh, they have announced today, which I think is uh, pretty interesting. Uh, the, the DW drums are great. I mean, uh, I started playing them uh, the, when I was doing a residency at at my friend Don Randy's club, the baked potato, they had a, a DW set there that they kind of DW endorsed the club, which rightly so it's a brilliant place. And uh, they were about to switch out the, uh, the kit. And uh, I inquired about what, what, what was going to happen to that kit that that was going to be kind of taken out of the club. And I managed to get a hold of it. And so I, I really enjoyed that kit. And also when I would be touring, uh, when backline was provided, nine out of ten times a DW kit would be provided. It was always great, and so um, yeah, I just kind of uh, and also you know the, they were local, really DW, and they're they're just yeah. really great, uh, really take care of their artists. And you know DW were great drums, so they went through a lot of changes. The company went through a lot of changes over the years. I think they're kind of back up and running now a little better than they were before, but. Uh, I, I cherish my uh, old premiere kits, but uh, the drums that I use today, DW, really work for me in all different uh, situations. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great drums, great, great drums. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. They're all great. They're the people. Yeah. So, I, and I was going to ask you so you're in LA right now. So, do you spend more time out in LA than you do in New York these days? Or are you. Yeah, but I go back and forth, you know, quite a bit. I'm I'm in New York all the time too, you know. I'm yeah. kind of bi-coastal, have been for a really long time. But right. um yeah, that's kind of but I'm in LA right now and um you know, it's a lot going on here when I first moved here. It's like, you know, session-wise I was working with Nancy uh Sinatra quite a bit and uh you know, playing at the Big Potato and things like that, so it's fun. That's great. When yeah. I met you, you were you were living out there, and I was surprised. And yeah. you know, in the late '80s, I was surprised that you were there. And and I think you said, "Yeah, well, I, I still have a place in New York. You know, I'm in New York a lot." But um, I think yeah, of I you mean, as the, a New York guy, you know, right? I mean, the band's based in New York, you know. Yeah, but you know, like like you said, LA. I mean, especially you know, procession work and and those types of things that you're talking about. You know, you're smart to have the bicoastal, you know, aspect of it because that's where you're gonna. Have those yeah, things. it worked out for quite a while, you know, but uh, I wouldn't really consider myself to be a session drummer. But I, I, I've done a lot of different things lately. Uh, I did the, the band Echo and the Bunnymen. I recorded their new album that's yet to come out. And I did that in the UK. And uh, I just did an album with uh, a band called the Rock Cats that were around back in the time. Uh, they have a new album coming out. And uh I just did a session with, of all people, Anne Margaret, the actress Anne Margaret. She has a, oh, wow. a record coming out, 
and a, a few things like that along the way. Um, always doing something like that. But uh, that's great. Yeah. Great, Clem. Well, I, I so appreciate you doing this today, and um, and I, I want to thank you. And is there anything in closing you want to mention? Or um, you mentioned we, we talked about uh, Against the Odds, which people can go out and buy. Highly recommend it. And uh, new Blondie record next year and all sorts of other things. So, Yeah, well, there's a, there's a documentary that uh, Sky Arts did about me in the U.K., that's kind of out there. Uh, it never got an official release in the States. It, it was released in the UK. Uh, it's called uh, My View, Clemberg, My View. That's kind of out there somewhere in uh, internet land. And uh been working on a memoir that's, that possibly will come out uh, sometime next year. And, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, during the pandemic, I started to work on those kind of things. Great. But I just want everybody to be nice to one another. You know, it's just like so such a crazy time still. And hopefully we'll get through all this and, uh, you know, things will get a little better as time goes on. But uh, that's, yeah, uh, that's, that's I appreciate you having me on, John. It was great. Great to see all your drum kits there lined up there. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. So uh, we'll see each other again soon, I guess. We will. We will. If you hang on one second, I'll end the stream and then we'll say goodbye. But okay. I want to just... Uh, Thank Clem for being here. Thanks for watching, everybody. Appreciate it. Um, a lot of great comments here, Clem. Aaron Comis says hello, by the way. Um, hello, Aaron. And lots and lots of people say hello and, and send you their best. So thank you so much for being here today. Big hand for Clem Burke, everybody. And um, thanks hey. for watching.